Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to meet uh, here and just open up your Word to learn from it. And I just pray that we would... Um, as we study the life of, of Esther and the events that surround, uh, surrounding her queenship and Mordecai and Haman, everything that's going on here, Lord, just pray that we would recognize your sovereignty throughout it all. And um, I want to pray that you would just help us to, to learn more about you this evening. And I just pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, uh, I want to start by sharing a little story from my high school years. So I would have been probably one or two years saved at this point. So take that out of the grain of salt. I wasn't fully sanctified. I'm not fully sanctified, of course. But uh, so when I was in high school, I had a job working at a grocery store in Montana. And I was collecting carts outside. And I was pushing the carts into the store at the time. And there was a guy, a gentleman, came out with his grocery cart just completely stuffed full of alcohol and meat and all these really high-end expensive items. But none of it was bagged. And so I was kind of like, that's a little bizarre. So I ran inside real quick and I grabbed my manager and I was like, hey, this happened, this guy's coming out, he's got all this meat and stuff and none of it is bagged. And uh, my manager dropped whatever he's doing at the time, he runs out there and I, me as a 16 or, 16 or 17 year old kid, I follow him out there. I'm not supposed to do that, but I did anyway. And uh, he chases him. The guy is pulled, has a car that's already running, pulled around the corner, like getting ready to take off. And he's just throwing this stuff into his trunk. And my supervisor is like, hey, sir, can I uh, ask you why your groceries aren't bagged? And his response was, I'm going green. So. <laughs> and, so, so my supervisor then follows that up and says, well, do you have a receipt for your groceries? Well, the, the, the clerk didn't give me one. Okay, well, let's, let's go talk to the clerk and make sure you get your receipt, because I think that's important. And the guy just shoves the basket over, and all the product that he didn't get thrown into his trunk, it all spills out on the parking lot, and he hops in his car, takes off. My supervisor's hurriedly writing down the, the license plate, and he would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for that meddlesome kid. Um, so <laughs> here I am thinking, oh, cool, I just stopped this, stopped this robbery. We rung up everything that uh, was spilled out into the, the parking lot and told it up to be like over $500, just the stuff that didn't make it into his trunk. And, uh, and they, they caught the guy later on and got a restraining order. It was, it was all pretty slick. You know, I was like, yes, I acted, and this guy got punished, and I stopped this huge robbery, and now... Here comes the reward. What's going to come? What's going to happen? The next day at work, I get called up to the office, and uh, my boss there, he's like, hey, wanted to let you know that uh, it's a great job on, on staying alert and aware of what's going on around you. Here's a $5 gift card to the Albertsons. <laughs> oh, I, I said the grocery store. But uh, $5 gift card. I work for Hy-Vee now, so I can't speak of other, other companies. Uh, so I got this $5 gift card, and I'm sitting there like, okay, well, I'll buy a sandwich for lunch, I guess. Uh, so, oh, and I got, my hands, I got a slap on the wrist, too, for following the guy out, because wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be doing that as a, as a minor and a clerk. But I got a $5 gift card. 
Anyway, I was pretty disappointed because I thought this, I was going to have a chance at maybe a promotion or maybe you know, a, a bigger gift card, a bigger reward, but I was just kind of left disappointed. And I think you'll find a kind of a similar situation as we read today's uh, account in Esther of uh, Mordecai discovering a plot against the king's life. So, um, right now, we are right here-ish, somewhere in there. My hand's shaking crazy. Uh, 478 is when Esther becomes queen, and not too long after that is when the first assassination, assassination attempt against the king happens. Um, so we're, I want to read through uh, Esther 2, 21 through 23. It says... In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the gates, at king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles uh, in the presence of the king. So... We are, oh yeah, our whole class outline. First, the exile expedition, temple from ruins. So we've, read, we've studied through Ezra 1 through 6. We're at this kind of period in between Ezra 1 through 6 and then 7 through the end of the book uh, where we see uh, the book of Esther taking place. And then the second exile expedition, a return to the law. So we'll, we'll study that at a later date. And we're into our notes. So. Our first point, an assassination plot is discovered. And we just read that um, reference there. The plot formulated by Big Thin and Teresh to assassinate the king is overheard by Mordecai. Um, I just want to make a quick note before we continue on that God uses this, this situation, this event, um, to put... Well, I'll come back to it later. Uh, I'll wrap that up later. Um, so... We're not told why these two eunuchs or these two servants were angry with the king. Some speculate that it could be the deposition of, of the previous queen. Um, this is happening right after Queen Esther is, is made queen. Uh, so there's some speculation there, but they were not told exactly why, uh, why they're angry. So there's, the plot is thrown away by Big Thin and Teresh, and then Mordecai informs Esther, who in turn informs the king and Big Fan and Teresh are hung for their treachery. So this is a really short account. And this, this all, everything that we go through today, it's a lot of information that happens with only within 18 short verses. Um, the word hung for, uh, in, in this, it, you often think of like a gallows with a noose, rope and noose. This is more so like an impalement and stuck on a stake, just so you guys know. This is kind of the grittiness of the Persian Empire. So. I say that because the people within the Persian Empire, Persian Kingdom, they're used to, to some of that grittiness, and, and you'll, that'll come back up a little bit later. Uh, I'll, I'll try to kind of tie that in if I remember to, but just remember how this, this kind of gory or gruesome imagery uh, here, because people are kind of numb to this because it happens so much. But, um, so that kind of moves us into our second point. I know that that was a really, really quick section there. Uh, but all of that is used by God 
to put Mordecai within a position later on to help the, the Jewish people. Um, and it ties into kind of my, my illustration at the beginning in that Mordecai was just looked over. So at this point, we're going to move on to a character named Haman who is promoted. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, why wasn't Mordecai promoted? He just literally saved the life of the king. Why wasn't Mordecai promoted instead of Haman? Because God is sovereign. So we're going to go to an Agagite's Passion Disclosed. Uh, and this is verses 3, 1 through 6, which say, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him that day, or spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as, they made, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews and people, the people of Mordecai throughout whole, the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So a few things going on here. Mordecai tells Esther in, the, in our previous lesson last week, Mordecai tells Esther, don't tell them you're a Jew. And now here he is saying, hey, I'm a Jew. Anyway, uh, so we'll, well, that'll have some consequence later on. But, um, so Haman here is referred to as an Agagite. Aga, I can't even pronounce it. Agagite. Um, and there are kind of two, two different schools of thought of what that actually means. Um, the first school of thought, and it's probably the most common and most probable, is that he hailed from a land called, uh, or a region of Agag, which is a location in Media, which was absorbed by the Persian kingdom at the time. And just, it's just referencing where he comes from. The other second, the second school of thought is that he is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, who Saul failed to destroy after being commanded to do so by uh, God. God said, kill all of them, leave nobody alive, kill all the livestock, everybody. And Saul said, I'm going to spare the king, and I'm going to keep all the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. He doesn't say my God, he says your God. Um, and at that point, you know, Saul falls from grace and um, he's, you know, Samuel ends up killing Agag at that point. Um, so it's, it's not likely that this is an actual descendant of King Agag, but that's kind of the second school of thought, that he's a direct descendant. Um, I find that improbable in my own personal uh, take on it because if he had any family, he would have been destroyed along with all the other Amalekites. Um, and then he didn't have any chance to send his lineage because Samuel killed him. So I tend to lean toward the first school of thought, which is that he was just from this region called Agag within Media or the Persian, uh, Persian Empire. Um, any questions on that? Or we can... At any time, feel free to raise your hands and interrupt me, <laughs> or we'll get through this material too fast. Um, okay, so from there, 
you see Haman's promotion. Uh, he's placed above all the other officials, similar to that of the role of a prime minister. So he's basically second in command only to the king. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, that's his role within this thing. So he's, you'll find a few things about Haman as we read through this, th some things about his disposition or his uh, character, that he is very haughty, proud man. He's very petty. Um, there's just all these, he's kind of the opposite, or he's, he's the guy that basically fulfills all the seven deadly, deadly sins. <laughs> like, he is the, a horrible human being. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually read a commentary that put it that way. Um, so, anyway. So, we'll, we'll, we'll see some of these things play out uh, as we read through it. Uh, did I hit the right one? Why is that? Disappearing. Okay, letter B. Haman's provocation. Uh, the king commanded all servants to the king's gate to pay homage to Haman. Um, if you're just taking the, the, the words at their face value, uh, this is the sole reason why people were bowing down to him, which, you know, that's, that's fair. Um, I think I'm a little bit more along the school of thought that Haman, I mean, yes, he, everybody was commanded to, to bow down to him. But as we get into the context of Mordecai, I think Haman had a sense of wanting to be worshipped about him. Uh, if you just know about his character. Uh, so when, when Mor or Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, he's, he's taken it as a personal offense, as a slight, um, because I want to be worshipped. I want these people to fall down when I'm in the room. He just kind of walks around with his nose in the air type of person. Whether that's true or not, that's probably me just reading into the text, but I think you can somewhat pull that from just who the character of, Mor of Haman is. Um, so Mordecai refuses to bow, saying it was simply because he was a Jew. Um, again, we have some different streams of thought on this. Uh, some believe that Mordecai was making a religious statement, whereas others... I uh, think that he's making more of a statement from the heart of, a national, of national pride, saying, hey, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow down to this guy. I'm not necessarily a, this guy's wanting to be worshipped. I'm not going to give undue glory um, to somebody that is like Haman. You know, I, I think some of it stems from that pride of like, this guy's a horrible human being. I'm not going to bow down to him. Not necessarily, not necessarily that this is going to dishonor God if I bow down to him. Um, this is a little bit more along the lines like last week we studied through the different the three different ways that we can read the book of Esther, whereas the level of faith uh, between Mordecai and Esther, uh, as a review, there's a view that they basically have no faith whatsoever. There's a view where they have a little bit of faith, and they have a view where they are all in on their faith. That's the, the short and skinny of it all. Um, I think I've fallen within, that, like, somewhere in between point two and point three on that. Um, I think there is some a bit of religiosity behind Mordecai's rebellion here or um, going, against the, going against the Persian law. Uh, but I do also think there's that national pride of just being a Jew um, and not wanting to bow down to somebody because the guy's not entirely holy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, so then, because Mordecai does not bow down, Haman's purpose is revealed it's, he's not content with seeking retribution with Mordecai alone. He sets his sights on all of the Jews. 
and he starts to hatch his evil plot. Um, I love Esther because you can just read it almost like a stage play. Um, it's, there's all sorts of drama that happens. There's some humor, ironic humor sprinkled in. Um, there's even a, like an aha moment later on, which will, that'll be in future weeks. Um, but right now we're just building up to the climax of the story or the, the tension is building and then the resolution will come at a later date. Um, so that moves us into point three. Any questions or comments before we... the end of A? Uh, Prime Minister. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Essentially. It doesn't call him a Prime Minister. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of the, a similar type role to give you a, a picture. You know, it's not the King of England. There's a Prime Minister that kind of does all the political aspect of things. Um, one of the things I did fail to mention or kind of explain earlier, uh, it talks about the king's gate. Um, I kind of didn't know what that meant. I thought literally it was like a gatehouse or something like that. It was more of like a room where political conversations and decisions were made as a meeting place between uh, different officers and the king where they would just make all these decisions. So there's going to be a lot of rubbing of shoulders between uh, high up officials and Mordecai uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of context of what's going on there. Um, so, yep. so the implication of that is that, that uh, Mordecai was the equivalent of a prince or someone recognized politically or would not have been there. When you draw the contrast, that he wasn't selected to be this prime minister. Right. So he, he would have just been somebody that tended to the, the gatehouse as people were coming by. You know, he was expected to bow down, whatever. But when he saved the king, he overheard this conversation that these two gentlemen were having. Not gentlemen, I won't call them gentlemen because they weren't. Um, he overheard this, this conversation. He shares the news with Esther. Esther tells the king. The king hangs these ties. And for him to be promoted up to like the second command would have been quite the step up <laughs> from where he was. Yeah, so he wasn't necessarily a public official. He was someone who had access to that Correct. without yep. being a participant. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? All right, so from there, we kind of move into the meat of the story, uh, the plot, because the Jews is kind of revealed over the next section here. So Esther 3, 7 through 15. Uh, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So they, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to the Haman the Agagite, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. All right, so there's a lot to unload there. There's a lot happening here. Um, a lot of things that if you just read it without really thinking too much about it, you, you might overthink it or um, glance over it. Um, 
number one thing, uh, the casting of Lot, when, when Haman goes to uh, figure out what day to kill all the Jews, uh, that happens on the, the first month of the month of Nisan. The first month is kind of a, a big day, uh, or see, does it specifically say, it doesn't specifically say the, the day, but on the first day in the Persian culture, Persian re religiosity, it's a big day in that the, their gods would meet to decide the fate of men. And so that, it's, it's an important little plot point here because he's going to discern what the fate of the Jews are gonna, is going to be by casting lots. They were very big on letting fate decide things, letting destiny happen. You know, the gods are in control of that, um, is, was kind of their take on it. Um, so Haman it doesn't mention this, but it's kind of deduced by what their, their culture was, that he likely went to the astrologists to have them do the casting of the lots uh, to determine the day. Uh, and so his actions would have been consistent with the religious beliefs of that day. Um, so just kind of take that into consideration here. Um, better a casting lots. Oh, sorry, just putting that up there. Casting lots. Haman uses the casting of Pur, a form of lots, to determine the date approximately a year later, 13th day of the 12th moon. So this is also the first time we have an opportunity to see where we're at as far as the timeline within Esther. Um, queen Esther, or Esther was appointed queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. And right now we are in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus' reign. So we're four or five years after Queen is appointed, or after Esther is appointed queen. Um, so that's kind of the first, the first time we've gotten a date uh, in this section. Uh, let's see here. Letter B, the command of the king, Haman informed the king of a certain people who are refusing to obey the king's laws. Notice that Haman does not say the Jews. He just says there's a certain people. So I think you can, you can pull from that saying that he was intentionally being vague or he's trying to manipulate the king. So he's a manipulative person. And you could also say that the king is somewhat manipulatable or what's the word I'm looking for? Gullible. There we go. Uh, gullible or even just doesn't consider much. He just kind of goes, he's the king. He doesn't have to consider much. He has people to do that for him. Uh, I think you can draw that profile of him based off of people, based off of what we studied last week with everything that was going on with, with uh, Veshti and then coming into this situation where he's just going to say, Sign, have whatever you want. You know, it's, I don't need to ask for specifics what people are disobeying me and just here's my signet ring, go do what you want with it. Um, which brings me to, uh, hey, oh, never mind, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So Haman reveals his plan to destroy the people, in quotes, because he has not stated who it was uh, to the king, uh, who do not follow the king's laws with his own money. So that's another thing here. That will tell you that Haman was extremely wealthy. Uh, 10,000 talents of silver. If we take the kind of traditional description of one talent being a day's wages, you know, that's going to be, I think I did the math, it comes out to be about $2 million at least. Um, so he's very wealthy. Uh, he has a lot of extra cash on hand, um, but he also, if, as part of his plan, 
it's to kill the Jews and take all their possessions. So he's basically just kind of lying either his pockets or the king's coffers to, to kill all the Jews, uh, either compensating himself for this deed or compensating the king for the deed. He doesn't end up actually having to use his own money. The king just says, here's the money, here's the people, go to do with it what you need to do. Um, we are blitzing through this stuff. Any questions so far? <laughs> What's that? Is he mad at Mordecai? More mad at Mordecai than any of the other Jews? Haman? I think he feels personally slighted by Mordecai, but he's so petty that he doesn't want to just take personal retribution. He wants to, to destroy all of the Jews. I think that's how petty he is uh, and how evil of a person this guy is. Like he's, he's going to take a little a personal slight and destroy everybody because of it. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but he's angry at the Jewish people. Um, that said, this kind of plays into some of the idea that that second school thought I mentioned earlier about him being a direct descendant of Agag is that as somebody whose people was completely wiped out, he would have been angry with the Jews or hated Jews to begin with. He already had a presupposition against Jews when this happened. And that's why there is that school of thought saying this is why he was so sensitive around a Jew disobeying him, is that, hey, Jews wiped out my people 600 years ago. I hate these people. So that's, there's that, that school of thought, um, and that's kind of where some people try to explain his hatred of Jews. Yeah. It's interesting that he tries this line that they don't follow the king's laws, which makes me wonder if they were, were they trying to do, keep Sabbath? Were they, were they really following the Lord maybe? Or, or was it just that he was peeved <coughs> over Haman not bowing to him? I think it's, I think it's that. I honestly think all of this is stemming from his Just personal his slight personal from Mordecai. Because um, yeah. it was decreed by the king that everybody bowed to him. Mm -hmm. So it technically was a, one of the king's laws. And when Mordecai refuses to do that, he's disobeying it and he's just casting that one sin, or whatever you call it, want to call it, that uh, offense to the law, he's casting that on all Jews, saying, hey, everybody, none of these Jews are bowing down to me. They're, they're being completely rebellious toward your law. Um, I think he just allowed that to stem from Mordecai's offense. I'm just trying to recall, where does this fit in the timeline with respect to Daniel? Was Daniel before? Mm -hmm. Daniel would have been uh, think so. probably dead at this point. He, Daniel was really old when the people were coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Um, I think we determined he would have been like his upper 70s or something like that at that point. Okay. So this is in that 16-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Yeah, the reason I asked that is because I wondered if that became wide enough known that the Jews were known as these cantankerous folks anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think Pastor alluded to that last week, or yeah. was it last week or two weeks probably, ago? Probably. When we did our introduction yeah. uh, to this, I think we, are, we did allude to that where the Jews did have a, a tendency to kind of buck the current government um, and to set up their own uh, own government, whether it be a theocracy or, or kingship. 
It reminds me of what happens today with the intolerance. You have everyone who wants everyone to be tolerant, but intolerant of any exclusive view. And when we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him, we're being exclusive. And that is a parallel to what he's doing here, it would seem to me. So we want to be tolerant, but we're totally intolerant of someone who has an exclusive view. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the offense. Good. Interesting perspective. Good questions, good discussion. Anything else? Yeah, you know, something else that stands out in my mind too is in verse 5 it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai had not bowed or paid him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. And unchecked wrath or anger or rage can have a mm -hmm. devastating effect upon a person, and he will do things that he wouldn't do. Otherwise. Mm -hmm. And he had the means to basically do whatever he wanted. He had the finances. He had the position, the power. Uh, I think he was a power-hungry person. Very wealthy to do. He could afford to do whatever he wanted. Um, so he had the means to fulfill his wrath however he felt on a human scale. <laughs> Obviously, we know that there's something happening behind the scenes. That, but good. Any other comments before we move on? It's just interesting, thinking back to chapter one, King was mad, too. I don't know, it's just like these guys blow up and <laughs> fall out of the story. Well, and then you think of their, of their position on religion, where they just, like, they rely on fate and all these things. It's like, well, if you really relied on fate, you know, you... When Mordecai didn't bow, it's like, well, that, he was fated to do that. Like, maybe you would just have that, okay, like, it happened. Whatever happens, happens is kind of the, I don't know. That, that was just a thought that bounced in my head as you were talking. So, good. All right, so, letter B, number one. Letter, uh, number two under B, the king approves Haman's plan and gives him his signet ring and funds the project. And for those that don't know what a signet ring is, it's, if you think of it kind of like a class ring, it has engra uh, something engraved on it that indicates uh, the, it's something that the king, like basically a king's signature. Uh, so as you'll find later, he, the king commands the, the postal service essentially to go out with this letter that's to all the people and Haman would have been using that ring to stamp all those to make it an official seal uh, saying, hey, this is officially from the king. This is the law. This is the decree. This is going to happen. This is something to take serious. Uh, so it would have basically had his stamp of approval, so to speak, um, on all of these letters. And I might be getting ahead of myself here a little bit. but uh, So yeah, signet ring is just a ring that has engraving, represents king's signature. Uh, common practice was to seal scrolls or letters with a drop of wax or sap, and then stamp the wax with a ring to indicate the contents were official. So you'll see that portrayed in a lot of movies and stuff like that. They'll drip wax on it, and, poof, and there's a little perfect little circle uh, with a symbol on it. Um, and so from there, uh, the, edict, the edict is spread throughout the land of Persia, and that's verses 12 to 14. Um, Again, we spoke a little bit about this service, uh, postal service that 
the Persians had. And 12 through 14 kind of explain that a little bit uh, in detail, just to kind of give you an idea of what, what was involved in that. It says, The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all the Haman commanded, was written to the king's uh, satraps, which I did not look what the meaning of that is, and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to, everywhere, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Uh, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In the one day, oh, sorry, to kill all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. So that's the day it was determined uh, with the lot. Uh, and then which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. So that's a key phrase there. This is going to be an expensive endeavor. Plundering their goods will help to offset that endeavor. Um, so yeah, the king puts a stamp of approval on it, sends it out the door. Uh, it's this big, complex way of distributing everything, but it, it was one of the fastest ways of distributing information in the day. Um, as we talked about, it, it was kind of the precursor to a lot of the methods of the postal service. Uh, what was the phrase you used in Darkest Night? Or basically talking about whatever conditions there are, we're going to get you your letter. It's kind of the precursor to that whole philosophy behind a postal service. Um, all right, so then that brings us to kind of the, the conclusion of this point, or of this part of the story. Um, the confusion in the land. Well done. Oh, yeah, point C, the confusion in the land. The edict spreads, and so does confusion. Uh, there's, whoops. Yeah, I'll just go on to the next one because these kind of go hand in hand. So while there's confusion going on, the king's drink, or the king drinks with Haman and the kingdom falls into shock. Uh, I've been kind of referencing a book when I was doing my studies um, by John C. Whitcomb. Uh, it's called Esther, Triumph of God's Sovereignty. And he has a section to kind of describe the, maybe the the energy or the thoughts that was going around at the time. And it says, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was, uh, sorry, my version says Susa. Your version might say Shushan. That's the same place if you're reading through that. Um, we're talking about the same location. The city of Susa was in confusion. The incident closes with a brilliant dramatic contrast. On one hand, the nonchalant king and courtier with their wine, and on the other, the people of the city, apprehensive at the publication of so arbitrary an edict. Doubtless, the Jews had in this capital city many friends who were stunned by this shocking example of irresponsible despotism. After the Jews, who else might be thus consigned to destruction at the whim of Xerxes? And that was out of this book here. Um, so yeah, it's, you can imagine getting this maybe, you know, gathering in the town square and hearing somebody read off this edict and just kind of looking over these people are people that lived with each other like could be friends with these jews you know they could be neighbors saying my neighbor is going to get killed in a year this is this is about 11 months before before this edict is going to be carried out um so you've got to just kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people that are hearing this even if you're not a jew like 
I've been living alongside all these people and they're going to be killed in a year. What, what, what is going on? Like, who's, going to, who's to say the king isn't going to do something after that date that's going to put me, put a target on my back? So you got to have to understand the confusion that's going on uh, among the people with such a, a ridiculous edict. Um, so, any comments, concerns, questions? When yeah. describing, I'm sorry, what, when you're describing, I was thinking what it's like today when we have word processors, copiers, and all that, and he had to group, bring all these people together and basically dictate a letter so that who knows how many people were writing, with how many styles, and how many languages, translations. Mm -hmm. um, and then every one of those had to be signed, sealed, and sent out. I mean, that was quite a, quite a project. Mm -hmm. I don't think we could really imagine that very well. We think it's something to write one letter, print it off the copier, right. or send it out an email. Put it in Google Translate. Exactly. <laughs> that was so much more involved. Uh -huh. And yep. probably not um, always consistent. Probably has confusing. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to, in order to get it out in a timely fashion, you have to picture the amount of people that were making this happen, all the scribes yeah. in this huge room. I just picture this huge room with tables just lined all the way down, and they're all just writing down the same thing. I misinterpret a word he says. Right. I mean, Can you go back and repeat yeah, that? Right. And then the other thing that I thought about is probably all these Jews were doing things that in their community was significant. Mm -hmm. So not only are they confused about this is going to happen to me, but what's the impact going to be when he's no longer there to do the stuff I rely upon um, in my community? What's the impact going to be on, that? Mm -hmm. on our lifestyle? Yep. Does the king know what's going on? I don't think he does. I don't think he ever, until the edict goes out, I don't think he even knows that it's the Jews that did this. Um, or the, the Jews are the target. I think that Haman was... <coughs> very manipulative and conniving. That's a really fun word, conniving. Um, and I don't think he ever truly informed the king of who it is that he's wanting to kill. I think he yeah, just... They went to dinner. Right. And they just sit there and they, they drink. It's kind of a Nero playing his fiddle while Rome built, uh, Rome uh, burned type of situation. They're going to just sit there and drink their, drink their wine while the Persian Empire is in chaos because of the confusion that's going on because of this edict. It's just kind of that Rome is burning, I'm going to play my fiddle um, type thing. I don't know if you've heard that phrase or not. But. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, just thinking that the king thinks it's all, it's all the people who are not bowing down to me are the ones that are going to be killed. You know, not having any idea who it is, it's just people who are not being subservient to him. Mm -hmm. It's just really. Yeah, and it's and it's all because and it's all because Haman was personally slighted by one Jew. Yep. And in, I I I'm curious if Mordecai had never mentioned that he was a Jew, what would happen? You know, Haman would have just maybe taken a personal offense to the guy and killed him and been done with it. But because Mordecai says I'm a Jew, all of a sudden that puts a target on every single Jew's back. Uh, it's just a, it just that one phrase I'm a Jew creates a genocidal, a potential genocide. So that's just kind of an interesting thing to think through. Um, you know, it's, throughout history you can see the Jews targeted for genocide I mean, all the way, all the way back throughout history, even as close as World War II, you know, so. Um, yeah, good thoughts, anybody else?
I just read an article this last week about a town in, um, boy, where was it? <laughs> uh, one of the Scandinavian countries that when the Nazis were coming, they banded together to save Jews. The whole town really moved together because they didn't understand why they would be targeted. It's, it's very similar, I think, to the shock that must have been happening mm -hmm. in Shushan. Yep. Good. So I mentioned earlier um, how God did not allow Mordecai to be promoted and that later on God is going to use that to put Haman's name in a book of good deeds essentially is what it, it was, ended up being. And this is a little bit of a spoiler, but in chapter 6, we'll see that the king Ahasuerus is just having a restless night. He can't sleep, and he basically calls somebody to him and says, hey, go grab the encyclopedia and read it to me. It's basically kind of what he's saying. I mean, to an extent, it's, just, it's this book of, of good deeds, and that's where Mordecai's name comes up, and the king says, hey, who is this guy, and why, why has he been rewarded? Um, and that kind of kicks off the next stage of the everything. And so this is just building up tension, building up tension, building up tension. Um, it's just awesome story writing. It's, it reads like a, a, reads like a, a playwright, like I said earlier. It's just kind of, it's got all the cool facets of a, a good story. Um, so, good. Uh, that's a little bit of a spoiler. We'll get into that in future weeks. So, what? <laughs> God is so sovereign over all things. Um, he is sovereign over time. Uh, everything happens on God's timetable. So God's timing is displayed in the casting of lots, giving enough time for the edict to travel and the tension to build, uh, leading up to the salvation of the Jews from the hands of Haman. So he is sovereign over all of these things that happened. It, yes, they cast lots, but God is sovereign. He allowed those, that date to be chosen. It allowed the word to, be, to spread uh, to all kingdom or all, all, all the different towns, cities, and whatnot. So he, he allows all those things. He's sovereign over time, and that can be applied into our own lives. If you're, not, if you're being told no now or being told wait or yes, God is in control of all those things. He might be preparing something else that's better. Um, yeah, I think, well, this is, I guess, more so that when he is sovereign over events, sorry, the uh, bullet looks like it, <laughs> oh, sovereign, that's a bullet point. That's not an O. Uh, he's sovereign over events. Um, all things that happen are allowed to happen according to God's will. And I, that, makes, that brings me back to kind of reflecting on my own personal experience. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I'd lost my job uh, out at the corporate office. And uh, at the time, I was just kind of like... What is going on? I have no idea what's going on with my life. You know, I know God's sovereign. I, I was resting on that. But I was just kind of in a hurry up and wait to see what God is, is working on. And he allowed me in the position I'm in now, which I absolutely love. And it's, it's a fun job. You know, I get to eat ice cream for a living. So what's wrong about that? <laughs> um, but no, it's, so it's just things can, be, it, things can happen. Sorry if I keep wandering outside the camera range. Things can happen so that something better can be coming Sometimes something better doesn't ever come up. It, God just is sovereign in those ways, um, and we don't we don't understand the mind of God. We we can't. Uh, God is sovereign over our suffering. Again, oh sovereign. 
uh, he allows earthly suffering to bring us heavenly gain. Again, we leave our story where things are... Sorry, let me go back to point two. I forgot to read a little blurb here. Um, God allowed Mordecai to be looked over for promotion so that he would be positioned for a greater role that will be revealed at a later time. That was over events. And then sovereign over our suffering. Um, again, we leave our story where things are looking bleak and hopeless. This edict goes out. The people are going to be destroyed in 11, 11 months, or approximately 11 months. It's a pretty hopeless-looking situation um, if you do not recognize the sovereignty of God. Um, but God is preparing the way for a confrontation that will deliver his people from the evil schemes of, of Haman. So that's kind of where we are at on that. And that concludes my part of the lesson. Anybody else have discussion? Or? I was just noting um, in the, the middle of your lesson there, you know, we were talking about the fury of Mordecai and the fury of the king. So you have this ultimate emotion and then they're in these ultimate positions of authority and we're supposed to be in awe of that and then there, Haman has this ultimate amount of money I mean he's just extremely powerful extremely rich extremely furious and it and God is bigger mm -hmm. than all of that and so I love God's biggerness in this whole story that you've got the ultimate rulers of the whole world at that time, but God is bigger. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I also like your sequence that you have. Um, I remember uh, we tend to want to know right now. Don't make me put off. I, I have a friend who um, never will tell me the end of the story. They tell me I've got a story to tell you. And if I try to get them to tell me the end of the story, they won't do so. Listen to me, look to the story. And um, I remember being in a situation where I had, I worked for someone that um, people thought he was a terrible leader because he was always putting things off. But he was always right. <laughs> and um, what I learned was that uh, there were times when it seemed like there was a decision needed to be made. And all the evidence really made it clear what the decision should be. And so I'd be inclined to go ahead and say, well, let's do this, or whatever it is. And then, sometime between then and when you needed to know, something else surfaced that made it clear that was a bad decision. Mm -hmm. So learning timing and recognizing it, because people want to know, doesn't mean it's the right time to decide, mm -hmm. is an important thing. And then learning about events. Um, I mean, it's tough learning the timing thing, but then learning that this event, like the one you described, happened, how can this be good, or this is the plan of God? And you go through enough of those, and you begin to recognize, oh, there is something I don't understand yet. You begin to be able to accept it. Mm -hmm. But the really tough one is the last one. Yep. Because you don't know if it will be solved. Mm-hmm. And you have to come to a point of recognizing if he has allowed it and if he has purposes that are for our good and his glory and as you said they're heavenly gain. But I think that's the toughest one mm -hmm. to come to embrace. Yep. But it makes a big difference. I appreciate the, the sequence. And I kind of stole that uh, earthly suffering and bring us heavenly gain from a song. So, Father, you are sovereign. Uh, it says... O oh, Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain. 
transmuting earthly sorrow to bring us heavenly gain, or, or to gold of heavenly gain. Um, it's just that that song has always kind of stuck out to me in that in that way. Just uh, it's a solid hymn. That point makes me wonder as well. You know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of Satan. God's not mentioned in the book, and neither is Satan. Mm-hmm. You think of the book of Job. Yes, uh, what went on? Yeah, if you miss verse six, I think it is in chapter one, you're going to miss the whole point of that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It makes me also think of uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph, and how the things that he went through, and you just try to put yourself in his shoes and, yeah. and thinking through, yeah. how is this good? How is my God good when I'm being accused of these things? Where I'm getting sold into slavery and I'm, you know, being forgotten? But God used all those things to put him in a position to save his brothers and. We can see that, you know, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's, you know, that similar God is sovereign uh, concept. I just love the sovereignty of God. It's one of my favorite attributes of God. Um, and Joseph is my favorite Bible story as a result of that. But um, So, yeah, it's just recognizing that God is sovereign over all things, and he's sovereign in this situation. He might not be mentioned in the Bible, but you can see how everything is being positioned for this this climax, this big, big moment that's coming up. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.